Welcome to the I'm Assuming podcast. This is Ija Mohan and today I have, um, although I would like to call him a, a mentor, I think he would prefer a friend, uh, Mr. Yong Kit San. Uh, Hi Ija, thank you for having me today. <laughs> Kit, thanks for doing this. I, um, I think I would have preferred you to be one of the first guests because I think uh, more than most, you're a lot I wouldn't say harsher. I think you're a lot more unfiltered with your comments when it comes to... <laughs> so if you get shut down early, you know why. So it's better for me to come in a little bit later. Well, in many ways, this, this the, the podcast, or at least why uh, it came about is to kind of challenge assumptions, right? So you helping me to challenge assumptions, um, I guess on my personal capacity when it comes to work or even some relationship advice. Uh, it's I guess it's good to have a kid in your life. It depends on whether Nisha is listening in. Um, giving you advice on your relationship did not come <laughs> out sounding very right. <laughs> yeah, she... Uh, well, I think she has to catch up on the podcast, so we are still safe. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, I think one of the... For me, the, the fascinating thing, uh, especially when I talk to people, is kind of trying to reflect how we first connected, right? How, how our parts kind of intersected. Uh, I don't quite remember. I remember that, that nice uh, startup then in Bang Damansara Heights. Is that called Madagos? Yeah, I think ah. so. Uh, yeah, it was called The Nest or The Madagos. Actually, one of the things I wanted to ask you is how did you come across and end up coming there? I think somebody reached out to me Um Forgive me, I'm just very bad with names. I don't remember who it was. Uh, I remember the face, but not okay. the name. And then uh, somebody reached out to me about probably exploring, mentoring, or some startups. I thought it's exciting. I've uh, mentored startups before that, so I thought it's interesting. And when I actually went over, um, I think we, we talked about several possibilities. And I thought your venture was one of the more exciting ones. It was closest to a brick and mortar business, which I'm mm. actually much more familiar with. And I thought that it's um, very interesting because for the longest time, I thought one of the best things that can happen to a very lazy consumer like me is to have a subscription wardrobe kind of thing <laughs> that somebody will send me a shirt every three months so I don't have to think about uh, what to buy. Yeah, I um I was hoping there would be more uh kids along the way to make that business work, uh, but I think one of the interesting things around that time was that getting someone to uh kind of come on board uh, with no real vested interest, you know, not your unpaid, you know, I think maybe I've bought a couple of coffees. You probably bought a lot more for me. And just as a well-wisher, advisor, or commentator is, I think, very important, especially if you're talking about somebody starting up a business or any kind of new venture. That's what you were thinking. I yeah. was thinking that uh, being part of that interesting venture early on would actually give me big returns uh, when the venture makes it big, <laughs> right? So, yeah. So, <laughs> I, think, uh, Man, I, think that I would love to that, have that yeah, conversation. There was a motive there. <laughs> <laughs> but you have also dabbled with 
entrepreneurship yourself, right? Uh, yes, uh, I was involved in quite a number of startups, mostly uh, beginning in the 90s in PCs, uh, networks, streaming business, e-learning. And so, um, and how did you get into that? What were you doing before and what kind of led you into... Oh, way, way earlier. I think uh, when I finished school, I got a gig, so-called uh, assembling PCs. We made some money actually um, assembling PCs from scratch and selling them. Uh, of course, this is late 80s, early 90s, and our idols then were quite different. Our idols mm. then were like people like Michael Dell, wow. who mm. made a lot of money, become the youngest billionaire and all that. So we thought, hey, maybe making PCs is right thing to do and we were actually we actually made some money and uh, lost our shirt because I think the, our first venture made a lot of money and then uh, we had a big shipment in the Middle East and then the Gulf War started uh, we never saw our shipment uh, apparently so the, the the ship sunk or pirates took your loot or if I'm writing my memoir, I would like to think that, hey, there's some interesting stories like this behind. <laughs> I heard from the insurance company more like, uh, but it, that our, okay, I'll talk about insurance in a while, but then <laughs> I heard what happened is that the captain practically just repainted the ship, changed the name and stole all the goods. <laughs> so it was a lot more, less exciting. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And uh, being uh, a little bit of a cowboy ourselves then, I think uh, we, we weren't insured to the full. We were mm. probably insured like 20% of the total worth. So we literally lost our shirt. Um, was that eventually. the first shipment going out for you guys? Or you have done nah, it before? That was like probably 18 months after we made some money from our big first shipment. So okay. we were actually making some money. And we were going pretty well. And then uh, that was actually the biggest bet at that time. We actually put in a lot of our personal investments. Wow. And if you don't mind me asking, uh, how did you get around to your first shipment overseas? How did how does someone in Malaysia assembling PCs here? It was pretty it was pretty easy back then. Um, easy in two ways. Number one, there was no social media, no internet. Um, no internet. So, so this was yeah, yeah. This is like nineteen ninety. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And if there was internet, you have been bombed by the Gulf War anyway. But then, <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't any internet at that time, so there were clear bulletins and clear forums where you buy and sell international trade. So the I used to I I tried dabbled in shipments of t-shirts and stuff like that before mm. that so it was uh, it was pretty easy once you list yourself and uh, PC was really new at that time so why why was it that people were buying from Malaysia or from you I, we... I suppose people weren't that particular they weren't that many options at that time most PC makers make and sell PC that are branded they won't sell OEM okay so the biggest OEM makers at that time are actually other than the Taiwanese are actually the Singaporeans I mean a, a small setups mom and pop shops that actually sells 200-300 PCs at the same time wow uh, so, so these are so those are considered small mom and pop operations selling like in batches of like 200-300 pieces seems like mid-size now no? well 
It takes, I, I remember it takes a crew of four people with an electric screwdriver to be able to put <laughs> together like 40 pieces in a night. And this is not a day job. This is like you go in um, 9 o'clock and then you, you get out of there by 3 o'clock in the morning. You, you, you can assemble 40. So 200 pieces is like three persons sort of job or a four nights thing. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a gig. Okay. And okay, so when you say you lost the shirt off your back, oh, I'm getting a call. Never mind. I think I can ignore that one. So when you say um, you lost the shirt off your back, right? What does that mean in the sense that um, where did that leave you all? Uh, when you found out the shipment. I think I guess you found out was when it didn't arrive, lah, which was what weeks after you shipped no, it. No, no, I think the what the the war started, so there was a blockade. Okay. So that's when you scramble to look for your shipment because there are all the shipments have to go through the the, the canal and okay. then uh, it goes through the Middle East. So when mm. the war started, we were scrambling just like every other trader scrambling to find your ship. Okay. and see whether it has crossed and it has gone out of the, 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 the zone of danger and stuff like that. Mm. And that's when the insurance company gets involved because the, they want to make sure that they don't lose their shirt trying to pay off insurance. Mm. Mm. So uh, that's when you see that, hey, the shipment entered at one end, mm. did not come out the other end. Mm. That's when the uh, insurance company will start looking for, hey, did, did it get hijacked? Did it get uh, bombed? Did it get mm. whatever? And then you don't find anything. So basically, you get blank for three months, not doing what happened. Uh, until possibly somebody tipped off somebody that a certain ship has entered a certain port somewhere that looks like this particular ship because they couldn't find background information. Everything was manual then, but it's not mm. internet where you mm. can check things. So, yeah. so this kind of news takes days and weeks before you receive them and uh, very little things you can do about it in terms of verifying stuff. Okay. I, I actually saw a very interesting documentary. Well, I wouldn't say a full-on documentary, like a short, mm. one of those wise walks documentaries on YouTube, which was talking about uh, cargo ships that was trapped in the... Is it the Panama Canal? No, it's not Panama Canal. It's like, what was it? It is the Suez Canal. Suez Canal, right? And and they were literally trapped there for years because uh, I think when when the war kind of broke out, they wanted control of the, of the canal, so they bombed the exits and blah, blah, and all that. So there were ships there with cargo literally stuck for years while the conflict was being resolved. With the crew there, and uh, and you know, it was uh, maybe one of your ships is still there? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Uh, as far as I understand, it doesn't quite work. The canal itself is pretty safe. Um, it's probably the, the the Panama Canal and Suez Canal probably the most heavily militarized and protected zones. Uh, the canal works with locks, mm -hmm. and um, so when your ship goes in, it, it raises the water, it moves on. Uh, so the canal itself is very safe. But once you come out from the canal into the uh, uh, in between Saudi and um, Iran, I think that's where the, yeah. that, that, that Homo Straits gets what you call mine. Mm. And that's where your ship can, the captain makes a decision perhaps uh, not to move on or they get boarded and then they get uh, told or being asked to 
port at either one of the places. That's what usually happens. And then once you port, you probably get stuck. Okay. As far as I understand, um, mm. but that's shipping and that's a long time. So, so when you say you kind of lost everything, right? What happened? How did I you didn't have about? much to lose to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like a twenty-year-old kid at the time and made some money, and you probably so lost this was money more. that y'all had made over the years, which you put into this, or it was like debt or borrowed money. I mean, both. I think okay. uh, I got into some serious debt at that time. I think all of us did uh, we okay. got in some serious debt at that time, but then now that's part and parcel of. How did you get? How did you get yourself out of that? To crawl out of debt at such a young age. It, in hindsight, there was not so much anxiety. So I suppose hmm. that, that if I lose my job today, I'd probably be a lot more nervous than back then. Okay. I don't know. Okay. So I think uh, in hindsight, is uh, I mean, the worst case, you declare bankruptcy. There's nothing much people can do about it. Um, I mean, it's, I think you feel bad about it, but. It's not the end of the world. Okay. Right. And mm. uh, we had a few ventures on at that time. Um, so it wasn't, I had a day job at that time. So it wasn't that bad in terms of uh, the impact when you're young. And uh, you're just thinking this one of three things, it fails. So uh, we had a financial backer. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and the relationship, the financial backer, fortunately for us at that point of time, was good enough that he's saying that, okay, that shit happens and then uh, we just have to see how we can get this back. Okay. And fortunately for us, our financial backer, or rather our financier at that point of time was reasonably well off and mm. he was able to let us pay it off over a long Okay. Oh, okay. So that was nice of him. It is. And uh, I think he remains somebody that a huge amount of respect for, mm. uh, very successful. And he always acted like a bit of a mentor to some of us. Mm. Not, uh, would you say that, because even in my current, uh, I wouldn't say extensive, what minimum experience I've had with entrepreneurship and all that, there has been investors and well-wishers who come in as like angel investors who come in, who are actually shrewd businessmen, but also extremely forgiving and understanding at some point, lah. No, I'm not. It's not their status quo, but you know, especially when I hit hard or there's mm. a massive fuck up, right? And I'm where I expect to be chewed out by them, and like you know, given a earful, suddenly you know they can come and say it's okay. I understand you did your best. You know, you know, okay, why did you sort this out and pick yourself up and figure out what's next, lah? Which I did not expect at. All I thought I was just gonna get nasty calls and emails and meetings. Firstly, we are allowed to use the F word. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, okay. Actually, that, you that, don't yeah. use it so often, so it shouldn't be an issue I don't, for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, I think uh, in everybody's life, um, having the right role model, mentor come into at the right time is incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. um, I was just talking to you this morning that I think that uh, uh, I think life can be best described uh, at best uh, is opportunistic. Mm. Generally, it's random and mm. at worst, it's just tragic. So mm. uh, when op 
opportunity strikes and you get a good mentor who is going to help you either way whether it's just a word of good advice whether it is money and I think that makes a world of difference to how you are going to get out of it whether you make money or not in, your, in that particular venture I think going from there and learning and having somebody like this actually is incredibly important and I don't think that is how seed funding and mm. uh, venture funding or even private equity funding is made out to be in this day and age. Okay. Right. So in those days, there's no such thing as venture funding. So if somebody thinks that, hey, Ija, you're great, I'm going to fund or I'm going to invest, it's either I'm going to take 80% and mm. you take 20 yeah, or you work for me. Yeah. Or it's going to be, hey, you just take this money and see what you can do about it, right? So, mm. so, it, so I suppose if you go about the latter type of people, they are probably going to be exactly like you said. Uh, I mean, they do it as a form of encouragement and support. So I mm. think the approach is very different from one that says, hey, I've got a hundred million here and I expect a twenty percent returns in five years. I think that that, that whole approach is very very different. Mm. But do you think that this? Um let's say the style of investor, mm. is it more common for them? Are there more kind, understanding we, uh, investors if you were to put a ratio to it? Or do you think most investors out there are pretty shrewd? La? I mean, there's no right or wrong. I mean, it's just the style of conducting business. But I just find it proportionately, you know, especially the early part, non-institutional investors are are forgiving or oh, I don't know if they are forgiving only because they feel that you've kind of tried your best la, or you have not deliberately sunk uh, you know their investment or so on I think I mean it, sunk I don't mean a pun or <laughs> ship or anything like that <laughs> I, I think it comes down to several things number one is how painful it is for the event Right. Okay. If you mm. if your yeah. entire net worth is twenty million and mm. you sunk eighteen million to this, I think that person mm. will come after you with yeah. whatever avenues they have. Mm. Uh, secondly, is whether that person how much trust that person has in the management team. So so for example, if I imagine I invested in WeWork, mm. I really don't think I'll be happy about it. Okay. Right. So so and I'm definitely not happy if he walks away with two billion dollars. So, <laughs> so I would probably chase after it. So so any but if I truly believe and uh, seen that the people have done their best mm. and that were and their best is a competent best, not an incompetent best. Mm. And secondly is that uh, they have tried all avenues and I, I think that is the second. I think the third one is whether there is a chance of any recovery, just like uh, just like a bank going after a bank loan, uh, how, why mm. does a bank go after a guarantor instead of the person? Because you're gonna not get anything out of the borrower. <laughs> so, right. so there's no point even if they they break your leg, you're not gonna get anything out of it. So, you know, I I heard this. I was at a talk. Uh, I can't remember. Probably a few years ago, and but you're making me feel feel very old talking about the early nineties. <laughs> no, you mentioned the year. I did not mention a timeline. No, but I, I attended this talk and there was um a investor. He was wealthy, but he also had like a institutionalized investing strategy, right? But he made a uh he 
said something that I thought was very uncommon. I don't know whether he practices it, but what he said was that when he looks at investing, uh, he actually looks out for, uh, you know, entrepreneurs or teams that have been trying for a long time to make something work or even to the extent of having failed before and they are still trying and doing something else, right? And But his philosophy or how he put it was he feels like he will invest in this these type of entrepreneurs and people because they deserve a break. You know, they have been plugging at this for so long and they deserve a break. And that's why some he looks at it. I, I find it hard to believe that philosophy on its own. Lah. I mean, because there should be other factors like he thinks it's a good idea or, or whatnot. It can't just simply be that, oh, this guy's been working so hard for so long and they need a break. Or, you know, how do you look at it? I think it is also different if you look at personal investors. It's my mm. money out of my pocket mm. versus I'm a institutional investor where I'm a manager. I collect a 4% fee and mm. I've got a 100 million that I got many investors to put into my fund and I expected to give a certain threshold returns. So if it is my money, I think each individual with their own individual styles and what they look for. Uh, if it is institutional managers, high chance is they are looking for an exit. Um, at the seed level, you're probably talking about looking at one big break, two break events, and eight screwed ups that you can write off. So, mm. so basically, that's you just need one big break. So, yeah. So basically, and and from that perspective, I think they will try very hard to look at what sort of combination of teams actually give the best returns mm. Um, mm. Uh, we're just talking about this morning you know that uh, I'm, I'm, I mean by profession um, we do psychometric tests I mean my mm. company does psychometric tests and we look a lot at personality compositions and uh, top teams have certain personality compositions CEOs have certain personality compositions startups have certain personality compositions that from a scientific point of view gives a higher chance of performance of the company, uh, a lagging performance of the company. So uh, that, there's plenty of studies about that. We, uh, I'll be surprised if the institutional investors don't look at that. Okay. But uh, they actually don't. So surprisingly, I just don't think that uh, many of these people are very... very so you mentioned psychometric evaluation. Yeah. yeah. What does that mean? Uh, psychometric evaluation is simplistically described as personality measures. Uh, it's a science in management psychology that looks at a organizational psychology factors, uh, including cognitive abilities, personality, and the entire study of uh, what makes companies and people behave in a certain way in, in the organizational. Okay, so I think my... Uh... My familiarity mm. with, with, with psychological evaluation or personality mm. tests, right, mm. is uh, I think I've done the Myers Briggs personality. <laughs> that uh, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to ruffle a lot of feathers here. Okay, so uh, from a <laughs> from an oxide point of view, that okay. is 
Sorry, what do you say? From what? From organizational psychologist's okay. point of view, okay. that is a bit of a toy. Okay. Uh, there are very little scientific evidence of its utility and effectiveness in use in organizational environment. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, but to be fair, I did that uh, at, at some later days during college. Yeah. So, but the talk was about preparedness for work. And, and, and that's, that's where I get a bit concerned is that practitioners, I'm quite sure they try to do this to the best of their knowledge and abilities. However, I think that the science is out there. And a simple Google Scholar search <laughs> would tell you what is the validity of a test, what is the reliability, what you can use it for. And, and you will find that uh, the literature is pretty clear that uh, it has to be, or most things will end up in a five-factor model for, for validity in terms of how it works in the organization at least. Okay. So, firstly, personality should not be a type. Okay. You can't be extroverted or introverted, for okay. example. It's, you it's are a scale. More, it's a... You are more extroverted than me, I'm less introverted than somebody else, and so okay. forth. So, it's always a scale. It's never a type. Mm. Um, and, and secondly, it needs to be normalized against the population. That means to say that, yes, I'm probably a... 80th percentile if you put me against a population of graduates, but probably I'm a 70th percentile if you put me against a population of senior managers in a certain uh, dimension of the personality. Okay. So in terms of, it's quite fascinating because um, it. I always tell myself it can't be as simple as doing a questionnaire like my ass breaks, right? Like a simple... Without, it can you be, just, it can be. So uh, it can be as simple, and there are really good scientifically validated tasks that can be very short. Um, and you think people can't game it? Like, you know, if, if going in, uh, if a company wants to hire me or a headhunter is looking at me and he's giving me a test, would people be able to look at it and kind of try and game it so it's it looks favorable you can try <laughs> a well-designed questionnaire would have uh, internal measures to actually look at whether for example there are two common measures it's called social desirability hmm. uh, how social do you desirability yeah, so how, how do you answer the questionnaire in a way that looks like you're answering because you think I'm looking for a certain answer. That's called social mm. disability. So what you're looking for something that is, is social, it? socially acceptable. Are you a filial child? De mm. Depends on who you ask, right? If you ask mm. an American or a Dutch, probably they'll tell you no. But mm. you ask an Asian, they're probably, mm. even if they think they're no, they'll probably say yes. That's a socially desirable mm. answer, right? Okay. And second, the very common one is things like acquiescence. Is how positive. Sorry, what's the word again? Acquiescence. Acu. Acquiescence. Right. Acu Don't okay. ask me to spell it. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But but that just generally measures like how positive or how negative you answer overall. Okay. So some people will just uh, I'll take a nine on everything or I'll take a seven on everything, right? Okay. So because that seems like the right thing to do. Hmm. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Meaning to say, that in simple terms, are you overly positive? So if you are, then from a questionnaire point of view, when we do the answers, is that is there a reason for us to recalibrate the answers, for example? Okay. So for example, let's talk about, uh, firstly, I'll just stop this right after this one other example. <laughs> of, 
in organization, you do performance management. So right. performance management is always overly positive. Like if you have a five point scale, three being meeting expectations and five mm. being spectacular. Yeah. The majority of managers will rate their team members as a four. Mm. Right? Just it's not a safe. three. You should be theoretically you say it's a bell curve. It's a three. It, it mm. doesn't work that way, right? Okay. So it's a four. But we also know for a fact, and that's to all the HR practitioners out there, stop calibrating your results on a bell curve because it is not a bell curve. Performance is a power law curve, right? So it's <laughs> a number of super spectacular people and 95% of very average people. Okay. But out of these 95% average people, probably 30% are rated a 4 out of 5. Because okay. that's just how people rate things. Okay. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's right thing or so wrong. So just to know. give yeah. a little bit of context, because yeah. uh, I know you mentioned it to me before, but just mm. to better understand it, right? So a bell curve basically says... It's a perfect distribution. It looks like, a, you, you know, you, if you've got a chart, then the highest point is right on a 5 from a 1 to 10. Okay. Right. So yeah, it's an equal distribution. Okay, that so, means uh, your superstars are at, a at, few at the, and your yeah. really weak players are yes. a few. Yeah. The majority is in the middle. Yeah, and a power law curve is where you have uh, very high at one end or the other and it starts sloping down from there. Okay, so what what those two, uh, what do they say? And how do they differ in the logic? Uh, it differs in the sense is that if you are making shoes. Okay. A distribution curve, a standard distribution curve works because the majority of people would be say shoe size 9 and mm. then uh, at the two sides, the shoe size 15 and shoe size 6 for men are actually very rare. Okay. That's, that's a bell curve, right? Okay. But okay. let's say if you're making shoes in a land of giants. Okay. Right. So if the majority of people is in a shoe size 15 and then very little people anywhere else, that's a power law curve. Okay. Right. So, so it, when when you try to calibrate things using different curves, mm. um, from a statistical point of view, you just end up screwing it if you're actually not doing it right and not understanding the context and not looking at the data properly. So, and what that's is, what people okay. like oxides do also. I mean, mm. besides boring stuff like creating competency models and performance management models that are not being applied in. Practice. I don't know why, because okay. most people go to school and they forget about it the moment they left. Is that uh, 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 you need to then use the right context to do certain things, and this is where a little bit of knowledge becomes very dangerous. Um, a little bit of knowledge saying that, for example, performance management uh, uh, needs to be done in the organization and is operationalized as a performance appraisal. Okay. A hundred years of research has shown us that performance management systems as operationalized as a performance appraisal is ineffective at best, dysfunctional at worst. <laughs> so but nobody seems to be reading that kind of literature, even though it has been there for years and years. Yeah. Okay, so with, with that in mind, hmm. um, would it be fair to say um, companies that are usually usually doing psychometric analysis on on their team and they are most probably looking at mid management, top management, or is it no. across the board? So there, there, there are two places where psychometrics are popularly used. Uh, this is not saying that they are more effective, it's just mm. popularly used. One is psychometric is very popularly used in terms of finding high performance. So if I'm going to hire 
um, uh, I've got 200 applicants. Mm. How do I decide on 20 okay. or 10? Right? Okay. So one way is that if I were to look at personality as a measure, there are many other ways you can, you can look at uh, experience, you can look at many other things. But if I look at personality and uh, cognitive abilities as a measure, mm. we know for a fact that the science tells us that uh, there are certain personality traits coupled with high cognitive abilities mm. provides you with the highest chance of high work performance when you come on board. Okay. But this is where a little bit of knowledge we talked about becomes dangerous. Is that this only applies at early career. Mm. Why? Because uh, then so they you, normalize. So you think about it, uh, uh, the layman version, okay? Mm. Uh, what works is if you're smart mm. and you have drive, mm. Compared to anything else, if uh, all else being equal, if you are smart, you have drive, you are likely to be successful. Okay. Right? It makes yeah. sense, okay. right? Yeah. Uh, if you are smart with no drive, you are just a guy that is criticizing and thinking the whole world is stupid. If you mm. are, you have drive uh, and not smart, you are just going to run around like a headless chicken. Okay. Right? So if you are smart and you have drive, you have high chance of success at early career. Okay. okay. Smart allows you to learn and acquire knowledge and drive allows you to get things done. Okay. But if you talk about hiring a senior manager, mm. smarts become less of an importance because you have many other proxies to measure success already. Mm. Without those proxies, then being smart makes sense. But uh, once you mm. have those proxies in there and say, oh, we are looking at the ability to manage people as in stakeholders, um, problem solve, uh, connect and communicate and stuff like that. So. Mm. Even though there is a measure for recruitment, it is a different measure on different levels and different job functions. And when, when you mentioned that this is most applicable to um, high-performance no. roles, high-performing uh, roles. A lot of people hire wanting to get people on board who will likely deliver high performance. Right? Okay. That's what people like to use a psychometric assessment tool or any other tools for. Okay. We want to find a tool to say that, hey, I'm not hiring the most stupid guy and either I'm hiring the people that least drive or the least the wrong match. Okay. So supposedly, if I want to hire an accountant or an auditor, right? so you want to have traits like attention to detail, mm. uh, ability to finish your tasks on mm. time. So mm. these are all personality traits that you say, okay, this is the profile I want and I want to be sufficiently smart and then uh, this is then the criteria I use and, and matching. It is again not so much a threshold to say if you're below this, I don't hire, but out of these 100 people, these 20 tends to demonstrate more than the other 80 and therefore I want so to talk to these 20. I think the, the question that, um, that, that I'm wondering is, does, does that mean that this would apply to anyone and everyone or only roles where there's a performance aspect to it. La. There is, uh, this will apply to anyone and everyone and all roles, just that different roles will require a different profile. Okay. Right. Okay. So, uh, so, so, I mean, back to example, if you're hiring an accountant or an auditor, you want the ability to look into details and all that. If you're hiring customer service people, you want the ability to engage, empathize and, and communicate and problem solve, right? So, it, hmm. it applies to everyone, just that you're looking for different things to different people. So, talking about what, uh, organizations are looking for in mm. candidates, right? And I think that there seems to be a, a lot of discussion 
um, on both sides of the table when it comes to hiring. I think I've even had this conversation a couple of times in the past podcast and all that. You know, with relation with there's um, a general, I will call it an assumption, assumption and stereotype uh, in the job market now where they're saying the people or the graduates coming into the job market now are, you know, or, you know, millennials, right? Yeah, what, uh, sorry? Millennials. millennials okay. Yeah, I'm technically a millennial, so I do. <laughs> so I do, it's a very broad I'm, I'm a millennial too, just that it's a wrong millennial, <laughs> different millennium. <laughs> so what is your view? Although I do feel that you are not looking at fresh grads per se, uh, but what? But as a HR practitioner, dare I say, um, uh, what is your view on, or your take on this assumption that it is, you know, the the they are not ready for the workforce, lah, or they're not su- suited for the workforce. I am. Uh, I disagree. Okay. Uh, I disagree not because it's a personal opinion. It's because I did quite a reasonable amount of work with our teams when I was in HR okay. um, way before I, I got into this line. So I was in strategy HR and uh, we were in the multinational. We were able to do a lot of research. So let's say, for example, the simple thing that people talk about that uh, young people, millennials or whatever it is, um, tend to be less engaged. Hmm. Research tells us no. They are very engaged. They care about what they do. The difference is if they are not happy or they don't see or they don't feel the value alignment between what they believe in and what a company does, mm. millennials are more likely to quit Okay. as opposed to a Gen X or an older person who is slightly stick around unhappy mm. versus a, a millennial who will likely happily quit. Okay. Um, then second assumption is that they don't work hard. Mm. Not true. Uh, mm. We measured the hours, we measured the output, we measured millennials work as hard, if not harder, if and when they are engaged. Okay. Right. So a typical Gen X or older person has, let's say, a productivity of 60%, mm. which is pretty good. I'm considering that um, 40% <laughs> How of the time. How do you measure uh, you find that in millennials, the engaged ones would probably run five times percentage patients higher. Okay. But if a disengaged millennial would probably be dramatically lower before they quit. Okay. It just happens that if they quit, you can't measure them, right? So it's a flaw mm. of measurement that you don't find. That we, we measure a lot of uh, millennials. So there's, millennials are more likely to stay at home and not get a job mm. compared to be unhappily employed. Okay. Right. So that's what we found, and this is probably a few years back, not not probably not that later. Okay. So another assumption, very common assumption, is that the new generation of people, the young people, the strawberry generation, we talk about, right? <laughs> I, I I I just thought about it. I realized that it's, it's probably a very uh, Asian person. I think it came up from the Taiwanese or something like that. Know. So it's called yeah, a strawberry generation. Uh, okay. uh, fragile young people who has got a lot of pride, gets hurt, cries, and go home and and, and cry okay. with mom kind of. Okay. So that, I, that kind of thing I, I think the the I was wondering what 
why the analogy to strawberries? And, yeah, because and it's, it's it, almost it is too hot, the strawberry dies. If it's too cold, the strawberry dies. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> too much yeah. insects, the strawberry dies. Right? Yeah, even <laughs> so, in the perfect temperature, it could still. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. so there's a there's an assumption that young people are not resilient. Mm, mm. Um. I I think the verdict is out. Mm. Um. There is a general assumption that the resilience. If I take a very rational approach to it and say that, hey. Compared to an older person who's going to be unhappily employed okay. versus a young person who would be happily unemployed, I would I can rationalize and say, oh yeah, the young guys have no resilience. Mm. Mm. Um, it's a yeah. simplistic way of yeah, it's a very it simplistic like. way of okay. saying that. Uh, but if you look at some of the young people and the kind of resilience they demonstrate is something they're passionate about. It's okay. probably three four times higher than a lot of jaded disengaged old guys hmm. however excited they are hmm. about their jobs right okay. I mean so I just think that there's a lot of sound bites out there hmm. which are neither supported by science nor research nor practical application hmm. my take has always been that uh, either you go back to what people has looked at in terms of research and journals on what things are okay. or you can conduct your internal research if you're a big company and I work with a lot of large clients who actually uh, do a lot of internal research and I okay. think they are fabulous research right I mean mm. uh, I think that uh, so a lot of these sound bites probably is just what it is sound bites with yeah. no I mean no ultimately ultimately we don't have a choice right because if you don't bring in new people, you you if you are not in, planning to bring in new people into the organization or or accommodate uh, the next generation of you know employees or team members, then your organization also cannot survive, lah. I I think that's where my fellow practitioners in HR seems to not lift up to expectations. Okay, I think they number one is I really. I'm less concerned as a practitioner. Let's say if I'm a head of talent, right? I'm I'm less concerned with how long somebody is willing to stay. Okay. I mean, if I I mean a common soundbite again is, mm. oh, you hire this guy, he's going to stay for loyal for ten years. Whereas hire a young mm. guy, they're going to stay for three years, whatever. Yeah, but to me, it doesn't matter. But that's but that's actually one of the biggest stereotypes i wouldn't say assumption because i would say stereotypes because even you take uh if if i take my mm. wife as an example right she's been working with the company for 13 years right and she's okay she's been doing very well i i would consider her successful even if she might not admit it but that story of working for organization for 13 years mm -hmm. and climbing the corporate ladder is not a very common story for, you know, not just fresh grads. If I'm talking about even my own age bracket for people in their 30s, usually that's not very common. Usually it is acceptable. But, but Ija, I mean, there's a mathematical thing, right? If you yeah. are in your early 30s working for a company for 13 years, means you start working when you're 20 years old. And you don't start working 30 years old, so you never get that. Right? So, so. Yeah. No, but, but you see, like, even if I talk to people around our age group, and and the, for them, you see, there's, I think the stereotypes are different, right? So I think if you are of a previous generation of Gen Y and whatnot, and then you say, like, well, three years jump company, four years jump company, right? 
it's very erratic. But I've also talked to people who look at, man, these kids these days, six months they leave a company, right? One year they want to leave. They say, at least stay three years. Uh, there's some stability. You've learned something and then you're moving on. So even that, that how long you stay in a company seems to be a sliding scale. It is even a conversation that I don't want to get into when I'm running, uh, when I'm running a regional operations uh, and also when... I think you need to, to be my, a bit closer to... Yeah, yeah. so when I'm in Can't the... Just... Say if I talk to my head of talent or recruitment, mm. if I know that young people come in for three years, mm. I take a different approach versus if I intend to have somebody stay with me for 10 years. Mm. If somebody is going to come to my company and work for two years, for example, I want, to, I want you to hit the ground running. Okay. Perform. Mm. Two years later or 18 months later, let's talk about a career. Mm. So if you come to an interview and say, hey, I'm here to learn, and I say, sorry, it's not a place for you because mm. if for two years, I expect you to hit the ground running, right? So, mm. so it's a different treatment and intervention versus to say that, hey, what can I do to make you stay five years? But no, I mean, so, so I think that um, it's to me, mm. I think it's, it's focusing on an area of concern that you cannot do anything about. You cannot do anything about the fact that somebody wants to stay for a short time or a long time. What you can do something about from an organization point of view is how do you ensure that that period of time becomes highly effective and productive to you. But would you be able to make a, a guess whether this candidate probably is going to be with us for two years or five years or yes, ten years? Yes, uh, and it depends on work track record. If this person's, for example... Um, there, there are a few things you can do from a HR practitioner's perspective. One mm. is you can look at a personality. Okay. If a personality of somebody who constantly look for change, mm. right? In the five-factor model, we call it open. I mean, it's actually classified under the openness part, right? It's somebody who's constantly looking for new experience and change. What we are then saying is, hey, this person is not someone necessarily looking for a new job every two years. This is somebody who is looking for a new experience every 18 months and two years. Can we okay. do something about that? Can, can, can we give them a, a project? Can we give them a promotion? Can we do get them excited about staying with us more than trying to do a, a grind or the same thing day in, day out for a year, three, year, four, he will leave or she will leave. Okay. Right? So that's, that's, that's number one. And I think uh, from a, the other perspective is uh, looking at previous work tenures. Mm. Um, why did somebody why did somebody move from job to job and not just moving from job to job, moving from job to job in very different capacity. I'm a oh. marketing consultant here. Mm. I become, I know UI expert next for <laughs> six months. <laughs> then I become something else. That, that, it, it could mean several things. We don't know. But that's okay. where during the selection process, we need to test, right? So, I mean, it could mean that the person does not know what they want. Okay. Uh, therefore, the person can still leave if he or she comes into the company and still do not find what they want in two years' time, right? So there's nothing much you can mm. do about it. They are on this journey of discovery. Yeah. Right. So, so, and the other, op the other possibility is that uh, they are just so bad at things that they can't survive after six months, right? So, mm. so there's those other things. So there, there are other ways of testing and validating to ensure that why do they do that? And, uh, and, and these are just two of the possible many different scenarios you can use to look at whether somebody's going to come into state. Okay. Uh, yeah. So the, I guess one of the, I, I think most people will agree to this, 
in the essence that if you ask um, an employer uh, on why em- an employee is not performing, mm-hmm. most probably employer will blame employee not a good fit, and it's usually flaws that the employee needs to fix. But if you were to talk to an employee, usually they'll give you a list of whether it's the employer or office culture, work culture, right? So it always seems like um, each party is is pushing the blame to the other party. Like I've also worked with um, a friend who, uh, Slim, who, I don't know whether you have met Slim. I don't think you have met Slim. Is this Slim? Uh, his name is actually uh, Muslim, uh, which is a, I would say a nice traditional name. But he, but he's too cool, lah. So I guess it gets short to slim. But yeah, he is slim. <laughs> now that I think about it, he's yeah. kind of slim. No, but so he's a HR practitioner, and talking to him for me, uh, especially when I was asking him advice regarding um, some of my employees and all, is very frustrating because. Uh, he would always frame it as your fault. In the sense that as you're an employer, if you're hiring this person, you will have to do more, figure out how to motivate this person, get them to be effective in the team. And So even in certain cases where I am biased, I so in my biased opinion, I would say, oh, it's blatantly a bad employee, right? For example... He no, would still I, go I, back. I, to... I wouldn't even. I wouldn't even want to go into that conversation. Because okay. I think that uh, the simple answer is both of them are correct. Okay. Right. So there are instances where it's employees' fault. There are instances where their employees' fault. Most of the time, it's both <laughs> their fault, right? Yeah. And uh, it's a degree. It is, okay. it is an analogy. Is you asking me if people divorce, couples divorce, <laughs> is it likely the husband's fault or the wife's fault? I think both of them have fault. So maybe the in-laws are involved as well. So I don't know. <laughs> no, but so, actually, I'm. I'm Asking not to point fingers. I'm actually yeah. asking to kind of understand how to broker some kind of understanding. No, so if I you're supposed the, to the move forward... Is not even a, that. I think the first step is to assess what is happening. Hmm. And again, there are plenty of tools in the space. You can run an engagement survey. You can run focus groups and all that. Uh, and these are very simple, cheap ways of finding out Let's say if you take a simple engagement survey in an organization, um, uh, which we HR practitioners run a lot, uh, if you run the 22 dimension or a, I don't know, a 30 dimension one, you'll find that a lot of people are happy with certain things and not happy with certain things. And different people in the different parts of the organizations are happy and unhappy about the different things. So let's say if I run for a bank, right? Mm. So a front counter person may be unhappy with the fact that a supervisor pressures me to move on after 10 minutes with okay. any client mm. or the fact that the back room is so dangerous and dark or, or, or walking to the office makes me feel scared right mm. there are many other reasons where both internal and external that causes people to feel disengaged okay. and uh, if we can identify those and we can fix those mm. I think um, half the problem is solved at least the actionable half of the problem is solved. Mm. The unactionable half of the problem, which is the fact that, oh, it's a wrong cultural fit or whether the person didn't want this job, he was forced to come to the work by his mom or whatever it is, those <laughs> we can't do anything about, right? So, and I, I, I am an action-oriented guy and okay. I always think that let's not spend too much time finding um, or talking about it in a very intellectual academic way 
Mm, okay. Either we take action to find out what is exactly the problem mm. and decide whether we want to do something about it mm. or we don't, right? So, I mean, if you want to talk, can we talk about, uh, I mean, the, the blue moon or talk about the lakes or something more exciting? <laughs> this, I mean, the, 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 the fact that whether it is my fault, my fault, or, or, or I just think that is very, very moot point that we should not spend too much time talking about. Like, when you mentioned that, um, there are tools at your disposal like mm. uh, you know surveys and focus groups and all that right does that mean that say smaller organizations mm. like just say if you are 10 people in your company and probably they can't afford services if you have like 10 this. people in a company and you don't know why people leave <laughs> You probably don't deserve to be the manager, right? <laughs> so I think so. So that is very clearly whether okay. it can still be the employee's fault. But the question mm. is, if you if you are you have the boss, you have ten people, and you don't know, mm. right, something is wrong with you. Mm. Uh, and I think that's also where I um, I did some work for some of the startups, mm. and I taught the big startups, right, mm. who is very successful now. And I think that. The, the best thing some of these CEOs and founders or even if you looked at um, Google in the early days is the best thing a leader can do is to know your own limits. Mm. I'm great at bringing a company. I have this founding CEO tell me which I thought was mind-bogglingly humble of him. Mm. He ran a company from nothing to 500 million mm. and uh, at 200 million, he quit. Okay. He didn't quit mm. the company. He quit from a CEO and become a CTO. Okay. And his rationale to me is, I'm good at the hustling, the, the, the ambiguity and all the fun stuff of trying to do things with no track record, I have no reference points and I can build a company at 200 million. Yeah. To build a company from 200 million to 500 million requires professional work, right? So, mm. so basically, it's like what he's saying that I'm good at first aid. Mm. Uh, I, I can stop bleeding, but mm. uh, I can't fix a bone. That's when I need the surgeons to come in. I need, I need the proper guys. And I think that's incredibly humble of a leader to say that, hey, Yes, most other leaders will tell me hey, if I can build a company from nothing to 200 million, I can drive it to $2 billion. But that's not necessarily mm. always true. Sometimes it's true, not always. And uh, I think knowing your limits and knowing when to ask for help is probably one of the best things a lot of young people we talked about earlier mm. um, uh, can learn about. And it's also one of the best things that all people can can okay. can, can can learn about, right? Is I mean, I'm feeling disengaged about my job. Uh, maybe I need some help. Mm. Right? I think that I think the ability to do that is incredibly humble and incredibly powerful. If everybody learns to do that, I think one of the things that uh, you've kind of tried to drum into my head uh, early on was this idea that um, exactly what you said, right? That um, to to kind of have a level of awareness whether you're the right fit for the job, number one, and and where do you see yourself going? Like, do you see yourself growing this, like you said, uh, all the way to the end, whether it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar company, or do you think you can take it to X? And I must admit, I think the first few times you tried to plant that idea in my head, I couldn't, I didn't quite understand it because in the sense that my assumption was, hey, it's, it's, this is my company, I'm starting it and if this grows to 100 million or a billion, it's my company, I'll, I'll probably be CEO for life or, you know. It, it took a while for me to kind of grasp the concept that, you know, what took you from an idea 
to getting investment to building the product having a managing a 20 man team uh probably is might not be the same skill set that can take you from 20 to 200 people it might be you you might have the capacity but at the same time don't make an assumption that naturally you can do it lah because yeah. uh, I, i think some of us are just predispositioned to starting things and mm. not finishing it mm. right so mm. that is also a very common psychology trait Uh, is a lot of us are good at starting things. Mm. A lot of us are very good at process improvements, mm. while others are very good at continuing things. Mm. Uh, and a lot of entrepreneurs, by nature, has a lot of curiosity. Mm. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, by nature, is good at starting things and doing three, four things at the same time. Mm. Right. Um, if you are not somebody who can who enjoys the processes and the day-to-day management the grind of facing daily problems and solving uh, daily stuff you will come to a point where either your company becomes very dysfunctional every day is this firefighting thing that nobody mm. knows what you're doing so for example one of the uh, there are many traits of a leader that people are willing to follow mm. but one of the most effective traits of a effective leader mm. is predictability mm. it's not whether you're yeah. charming or whatever. it's mm. predictable I remember you, saying uh, that. you think about it if if i know where if i know where my leader is going i know what he or she is likely to do in this or these situations mm. i'm able to then work with him preempt him or her mm. and then uh, and do what is necessary but mm. if today my Leader does this facing the same problem versus tomorrow and the day after. Mm. All I do is sit there and wait for him to start, right? So that becomes very difficult. Mm. That's and that's very common for uh, strong leaders who are very mm. very intuitive, who did not manage to learn to put in proper playbooks or or, or things that mm. people can predict what to do. Is that is that what they call having a culture of personality where? Uh, um, yes and no. I mean, uh, it's a culture of personality. If the personality is active, <laughs> it's a culture <laughs> of headless chicken. If it's okay. is ineffective, right? So I think so. So I think that is the important thing for us to recognize is that yeah, there are different types of leaders. What you are. However, the second point, which is a strength of startup people who are very good at startup. Okay. Not necessarily people who like. To think they're good at startup, right? People mm. who are actually very mm. good at startup okay. yeah, has okay. a certain amount of resilience. Mm. Actually, a very high amount of resilience, right? Mm. And a high amount of self-efficacy. Mm. Meaning to say that I think I can conquer the world, mm. and I can take the pressure and the challenge that is thrown at me. Okay, right? that's in simpler layman terms, right? So, mm. these two traits is highly required for you to push the company through its initial stages. Mm. These two traits causes you to be ineffective because you never admit the fact that I'm not good enough. Mm. Which is why I say earlier to be able to push coming from hundred from zero to two hundred million is mm. these are the great traits, right? Mm. But to be able to say that hey, these are not the same traits that's going to push a company from two hundred million to five hundred. Yeah. I think that's an incredible amount of humility to yeah. say that hey, this is not right for me, right? I I need mm. to step down. I need to maybe uh, uh, watch somebody 
uh, have somebody mentor me or have somebody do the job while I apprentice and then maybe by the time it's 700 million I can come back and that's what exactly Google Boys did and I think that's I, I thought that is a, 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 a great thing and I don't think that uh, I think that a lot of startup today mm. in my humble opinion uh, <laughs> but very strong opinion is that it's probably meant by a lot of people who are who are doing it for the wrong reasons Okay. I always say that I mean it's very simple right? I mean people tell me oh I want to be in control I think that's the yeah. biggest bullshit be you boss. are <laughs> out of control when you are going a startup yeah. uh, I want to be my own boss mm. you are bullshit now you have yeah. one boss you cannot handle try to handle <laughs> 20 bosses which are all your customers right yeah. or 200 bosses yeah. and your employees yeah. uh, who probably don't turn up and you have to do everything yourself so yeah. to be able to do a startup well some, I mean the reason to do a startup well can be many but mm. to, to, to having control and then or or, or, or some of these are really bad reasons. And I think a lot of, I used to say this about academics and mm. I say this about a lot of startup people now. They are mm. not entrepreneurs. They are corporate uh, uh, refugees. Corporate refugees. Okay, yeah, you, you, don't make it, you don't make it in corporate, you're a refugee. <laughs> then you run to become an entrepreneur thinking that that, that that is going to help you, right? So, okay. so you're not okay. bringing a lot of things that you learn from corporate to become an effective entrepreneur. Mm. You're, you're running away from all the things that you fail as a corporate employee. Okay. And then thinking yeah. that with all these dysfunction and failures, you're mm. going to make it as, a, as, as an entrepreneur. I think the chances of success is very low if, yeah. if you're doing it for that yeah. reason, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is different as an academic. So if I'm a corporate refugee and I say I cannot succeed in corporate because I cannot manage my boss, I cannot manage uh, all the other things and multitasking, I can become an academic and you can be incredibly successful as an academic because you can focus on one thing, you can be very good intellectually, uh, very mm. robust, you can do research. Yes, you can be a very, very successful academic. But if you fail in corporate, you are very likely to not succeed in entrepreneurship. Hmm. Actually, that's a very interesting um, observation. It's the first time I'm hearing corporate refugee. Yeah. Did you coin that? Uh, I'd like to think so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, in the sense that I've, um, if I can call it a philosophy, I think one of the things that I keep reminding myself is to never run away for something, but rather run towards something, right? In the sense that uh, the the end result might be the same, right? Um, you know, I want to, uh, you know, start a business selling T-shirts, right? As opposed to, I don't want to work in this office for my boss and I want to get out of my office, so whatever, I'll sell T-shirts, right? At the end, you're still selling T-shirts. I mean, you're ending up selling T-shirts, but the motivation behind is vastly different. One is, I don't want to answer to my boss so I'm just going to be my own boss versus, you know what? I think I can do this. I have this idea. I want to sell this product. I want to sell this t-shirt, right? And I think that 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 kind of applies to almost all facets of our life. Lah. In, in terms of trying not to run away from something and run towards something. Yes. And I just want to add one more mm. on top of that is however people are different. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah. It's yeah. what energizes you. So mm. certain people get energized running towards something. Mm. Certain people will never make that move until they feel immense amount of pain. It mm. crosses the threshold. Therefore, they run away so from the, something. Yeah. The carrot and the stick analogy, lah. I mean, in the sense yeah, that some I, people respond. Yeah, to the exactly. Stick. So some some people respond to pain 
kicking their ass so that they <laughs> they jump out. Some people respond to excitement, right? So mm. so it, it is it is two different things, and I think that that. But back to that corporate thing, I do think that uh, if you want to be an entrepreneur, one of the best things you should do mm. is join a company early on. Mm. Um, just find a a company, company to related join. to what. Industry in, you see, or? good companies or good organizations mm. has many dysfunctions. To be fair, okay. but it teaches a person several disciplines that is mm. important. Number one, it teaches you to manage your communication. Right. So, in a think about a corporate, I want to do something. I need to do a presentation to my boss and do the presentation to the board and all those the investment committee or whatever it is. Right. Mm. So these things teaches you how to effectively communicate, articulate your ideas. Mm. If you cannot do that in a friendly environment called a company, mm. you probably suffer more trying to articulate unfriendly investors who is mm. either trying to squeeze you uh, or invalidate you or trying to, trying to convince somebody else like customers and all that. So I think right. corporate teaches you several disciplines. Number one is it teaches you the discipline or discipline. I mean, you need to turn mm. up, you need to, you need to pull your weight, you need to uh, you need to be able to articulate. You need to be able to uh, deal with people, including mm. unsavory people that you don't like, right? Mm. So uh, in the corporate, there will be one or two guys that you love, one or two guys that you hate. Mm. You need to work with them effectively, yeah. regardless of whatever you feel about mm. them. And and these are things in a corporate environment that teaches somebody well mm. that will be extremely handy when you go out to become a startup. Yeah. Uh, and that's when the corporate refugee comes in. So if if you cannot manage this and you're trying to run away from such things like this, and right. then you're likely to suffer as a in the, in the environment. Uh, and in corporate also, it teaches you, it gives you, I, I have another analogy, right? If you can't make money from somebody else's money, mm. which you are paid for, right? mm. chances of you making money from your own money from your mm. own own pocket is actually very low. Right? Mm. So if somebody pays you a fixed amount of salary every month and uh, I give you all the resources of a corporate and you can't make it work, mm. uh, chances of you being successful with your own money or that is not necessarily very high. No, actually, I've kind of had that conversation uh, before. And so I'll give you two examples of that, right? Uh, okay, now I'll give you one example. I'll be safe some time, right? Um, is the question of we were? I think this was back in that MGVD, that startup right. house kind of deal, right? Where we were, we had some some of the interns, and they were not motivated to work on some of the projects, right? So mm. I was called in to kind of talk to these guys, and it was a bunch of young boys, and and I was talking to them, why you why aren't you motivated? Did you come all the way here to Malaysia to work on this? These boys were from Europe. And then, so their answer was, ah, you know, this is not my idea. This is your idea, right? And when I start my own company, mm. I will have the motivation to do it. But this is not my company, right? And and they were just like, you know, that's it. That's what I think. Why should I work when it's not my company, right? And I think the the the, the example that I gave them at that point was that, yeah, you're talking about playing in the World Cup and scoring the winning goal and winning the World Cup. But before you even get the chance to play at the World Cup, you need to be able to show that you're good. You need to train. You need to show that you're good to even be able to be given that opportunity of, you know, winning the World Cup, so to speak, right? 
So you're very focused on the end goal, which is, you know what? If it's I'm on the team, I'll score the goal and I'll win the World Cup. But this idea that are you good enough to be on the team? Do you have the skill sets? Have you acquired the training to be on the team? You know, basically training, you know? So the idea or the concept of you need to train in order to, which is usually we don't apply to corporate, or we don't apply to working life. It's a very sports analogy, right? But I think even in entrepreneurship, there is a level of you can be better trained. I imagine even in my startup, uh, in my merchandising startup, if I had even done a six-month free unpaid internship with another merchandising company, the amount of learning that I've had in the six months, I imagine would have reduced so much of my pain and I probably would have spent less money uh, and suffered less losses and maybe make new mistakes, but it would have helped me so much in my journey of starting my own company instead of trying to figure out and make all new mistakes on my own, right? I totally agree with you. And uh, there are some dysfunctional interns. Mm. Just like there are dysfunctional senior leaders and there are dysfunctional Gen Xs, Gen Ys, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I think you were unfortunate in meeting more than a fashion of them. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So here, let me give you uh, an ending to that story, right? So this, this bunch of boys, yeah. they're from Spain. They were not happy. So although my motivational speech worked for a few weeks, they still were not happy ultimately and they left. Although they were not working with me, they kind of left the, uh, the startup hub, right? So these guys, they went back to Spain. They started a sunglasses business out of China. We were talking about it here. They were telling me we should start here, blah, blah, blah. We were just talking about it casually. Nothing was done here. They went back. They started the company. They got investors in. And that company is a multi-million euro sunglasses company and these boys are very successful <laughs> yeah they could be so they you know. are they are outliers they are always yeah. outliers um, and I think it's just that again now we are talking about the bell curve right so mm. basically you say that, that the majority of people who needs to be successful needs to have that. what we are saying now is among the outliers people who don't show up don't pull their weight mm. and expect to make it big uh, when they actually become their own founders. Right. Yeah, they are. It's just probably instead of one in five, it's probably one in 50. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think it's great for them. But then I would be very interested to see what answer they're going to give to their own interns who mm. don't show up, don't mm. put their weight and mm. say that, hey, but it's not my business, I right? Quit. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I quit. And, and the, second thing, the, the second thing that I thought that we need to be also very clear is that the definition of success. I think the definition of success in your earlier podcast that I think you had with Daniel, that was spot on, is that I think the definition of success has become a bit skewed. Mm. Um, getting funding mm. and valuation is not necessarily a value. I mean, a definition of success, yeah. at least not in business. Yeah. So if your business is not going to be sustainable, it is a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Uh, you're getting a, a more stupid and a more stupid person to come in and invest mm. to a point where they say, I can't pull out because my entire shirt and wardrobe is already in your business. I'm going to lose my shirt if I pull out, right? So, yeah. so that is a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> that is not no, necessary. I mean, it, yeah. it is scary. Um, although it didn't happen to me personally, mm. I've, you know, at one point, I 
talking to so many VCs and trying to get funding even from our own company. And suddenly you start hearing when you're friendly enough and people have had sufficient drinks, you start hearing stories like uh, VCs kind of trading portfolios. That means if one VC says that, hey, you know what, I want to do the next round for this company, which is good. And the VC is like, okay, but then you must also come in with this company, which is not doing so good. So if you want something that, you know, it's a, want a good company. And so you see, they're kind of horse trading only because for the sake of doing it, right? Like, oh, I have this portfolio. So sometimes some duds on their portfolio is not necessarily good company, but because, look, I've invested, I want my valuation to go up, or at least I don't want my portfolio to look bad. So if you want this tasty, good company, you also need to put a little bit of money here. So, so in a sense, I understand what you're saying that, it's weird that you are raising money for the sake of raising money and for this perception of valuation, but uh, there's not necessarily actual fundamental, uh, you know, business that's operational and scalable and hopefully profitable one day, lah. You know, and but but you can't be so. Sorry, you can't as, be as what? a business. You cannot be not profitable in the foreseeable future. Mm. It has to be profitable. Whether foreseeable future is 10 years or 3 years, I mean, that's arguable. Yeah. It has to be profitable because at some point, mm. you're going to run out of investors because you're selling hope, right? So basically, yeah. you're saying that, okay, I'm, I'm going to give you a return. And then your valuation goes higher and higher and higher. And mm. to some point, you're going to run out of fools to invest mm. in the MLM and MLM collapses or, or your Ponzi right. scheme collapses. No, but you see like, yeah. there, so there are outlier, sufficient outlier companies that have made it acceptable. Like, Instagram and Snapchat, right? Yes, they are outliers. They are literally one in a million. But these companies never had a no no real revenue plan. And even when Snapchat no, went I, for I listing, I think there's a different Vijay. I think that you a company cannot be perpetually non-profitable. Hmm. No, but no, yeah, these organizations, but a, a, an investor can, hmm. right? So basically, you're saying difference is. The founders made a hell of money, just like WeWork guy, made mm. a hell of money exiting mm. a screwed up that he's going to leave behind for the rest of the investors. But the no, company not, as a whole I, is still I, going to I, be I wouldn't necessarily say it's a screw up because ultimately, Facebook wanted the acquire blah, 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 but, right? But so, yeah, when they acquired, their, their, their company itself is still a problem until they mm. figure out how to monetize it. right? Until they figure out how to monetize it, the valuation is all hope. Mm. Basically, then I'm selling an unprofitable company to you, mm. saying that, ah, if you really do this and this and this in mm. 10 years' time, way after I've gone on my Caribbean holiday and mm. forget about all this, no longer my problem, then yeah. you're going to be successful, right? Yeah. Uh, and when you buy, and there's a different reasons people buy that company. Mm. Right? Uh, but no, like, like, in this case, they're buying not because of its business, you're buying it because of some other reason. No, actually, Facebook, you know, eventually had a very profitable, strong ad model. Yes. And they just wanted to inject that ad model into Instagram. Yeah. And they wanted new users. Yeah. This is hot. Yeah. And Instagram now has sponsored posts, so in, paid posts, in, and so in, on. In other words, it's not necessarily... If you look at it from a company perspective, yeah. it was a white knight rescue. Yeah. It yeah. is a highly yeah. profitable white knight rescue, but yeah. it's, it's not a profitable sale of a company. So the company... Mm continues to fail 
Yeah. And then somebody sees that it is again. It's just like uh, I, I'm building a house, a brick and mortar. I'm building, yeah. I'm building a condo, right? Yeah. Oh crap! I mean, comes eighty percent completion. I'm out of money. Yeah. I don't know how to sell this. Nothing is sold. Mm. And then another property company says, "Hey, I'm buying your company because I've got all these buyers queuing up and they want houses and I cannot build them fast enough, right?" Right. Uh, so basically, as a company, you are still a failure. Mm. You are being rescued by somebody who think that they can make something out of whatever you have done so far, which you could not. Right. And therefore, they put a value to it. So, right. as your company at the point of sale is actually a, a failure, mm. you are basically admitting that I give up, mm. and then you just take it off me, and mm. then uh, pay me something, whatever that you think is right. So, so, yeah. so, so from that sense, from a very clear business perspective, it it is not necessary. And I think also that a lot of startups have that. Little idea that this is how to run business. Yeah. No, because the 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 stairway to heaven. Okay, maybe that's a bad. <laughs> the, I mean, the road to the promised land, right? Is it's full of potholes to help. No, it's. <laughs> there, I think there's. You're right. But I think there's no VC or entrepreneur would who wouldn't want to exchange places with Instagram, lah. In the sense that the VCs made a big exit, the entrepreneurs became rich. So they so so if VCs now are saying it's okay to have a business plan where you don't know monetization, right? All you need to look at is valuation and exit. No, all <laughs> you need to do look at is build value in a way that is valuable to other people, maybe no. not to you, right? Okay. So you are building value, and in in those cases, they are building value by having a it's just like in the early days, you measure by eyeballs, right? So yeah. The more eyeballs you have. Mm. So in this case, you are actually measuring by say I don't know members, users, or whatever it is, and yeah. then you are selling that, right? Yeah. So basically, that's how it is. So I don't necessarily. Um, no, I, it's I, not necessarily. I, a bad I agree thing. with you. Yeah. I agree yeah. with you yeah. that even for me, it is very hard to to wrap my mind around uh, something that is not going to generate revenue or generate profits. Eventually, like maybe it bleeds for a couple of years, but with no uh, runway. Of any type of revenue or profitability, it's it's hard for me to kind of grasp. But the reality is also is that the if I if I can use it liberally, is the Instagrams of the world have kind of made it okay for entrepreneurs to yeah, but not necessarily have a again we go back to the facts and the data. Yeah, you're talking about one in two thousand. Yeah, but you're so using you that, that as an 2000? example. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the thing is even now, I think um, savvy investors know that those are the outliers lah right but they also know that there's uh, maybe a 1% chance that that yeah, that yeah. their investment will go up so i think there's a lot of wishful thinking even on investors sometimes where no, maybe this could be it i think investors are always probably the most mathematically savvy ones. Uh, they will continue to invest in uh, likely breakthroughs or likely mm. Unicorns. Okay. With a mathematical model that for every dollar I put here, I need to put ten dollars elsewhere or some other thing. So, so at a certain points, once you hit a threshold, it's just going to step and say no, no more. Right? So, 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 so is that a mathematical model? They may not review what a mathematical model. Is, okay. But that's that's how they operate. Okay. So maybe, uh, okay, maybe wishful thinking was not the correct way of explaining. Would you agree if I if if it was phrased that. VCs see uh, they invest in companies where they see a return lah. Whether the return is an exit, yes, most probably it's an exit, right? 
But an exit is not necessarily a favorable outcome for the business or the founders. Not necessarily. Yeah. Right? So what uh, a VC could necessarily want may not be what's best for the business or the founder. Not always, but... I, I, I think that it's not just a VC versus founder uh, conundrum. Mm. It is always a shareholder versus management conundrum. Mm. Right, so uh, shareholders. So when you say management, you uh, see founder as management. Uh, founders sometimes take a dual role. Right, they are both a shareholder and a manager. Right. Okay. So, so if if you are owner manager, mm. if you are a family owned business, you also mm. take both roles. Yeah. So, so a family owned business is probably the best example analogy in the real brick and mortar world. Okay. So you have shareholders, your public listed company, and I'm um, the family owned. Uh, business, I control the business. Okay. There are some things I need to do to reinvest so that my company becomes bigger and stronger. Mm. Uh, the 800 pound gorilla, if you use the old terms mm. of uh, in my industry. Mm. But my shareholder may want a different thing. Mm. My shareholder may want bigger returns today, not mm. tomorrow or the day after. Yeah. Right? So, and, and you can see many public listed companies in this region, especially uh, they are family owned that do a lot of irrational decisions that mm. uh, minority watchdogs think that is uh, neither uh, right nor mm. uh, of high integrity. Right. So, and that's where the problem is, right? So, as, and that's where they have this dilemma between me as a, as a founder, shareholder and CEO wanting to protect my investments Versus mm. me as a CEO wanting to do the best thing for my company. Mm. Uh, and there's no right or wrong answer. La. Is there? I think history has always been the fairest judge. I mean, the, mm. <laughs> if you don't evolve, don't improve. Yes, if you don't evolve, you don't improve. Then the, and you don't control the no, government. Not, not necessarily. <laughs> Some people don't evolve and don't improve and still make a lot of money. So, mm. firstly, when you say, if you use history as a lens of judge, you need to have, again, the context of what do you define as success? Mm. If, you, if you define success as an exit, right. it's a different story from you. You define success as a business mm. versus if you define success as a uh, change of phase from a growth phase to a maturity phase. Mm. Mm. Or you define success as profitability or whatever it is. So, mm. so I think once you look at history, you look at... Uh, a lot of some companies, for example, that were celebrated for its sustainability and good practices have begun to fail and unravel in the last few years. Mm. General Electric is one of them. I mean, mm. you have Jack Welch and all that. And, mm. and then you can see the my articles recently about uh, Emelt and Gang, what they did over the last few years after Welch and all that. And, and, and they did things that were super for the shareholders, mm. horrible for the business. Mm. And that's when they begin to suffer. Mm. But then, if you again measure it by personal profits, mm. I think for him it's great. Like, it's no yeah. longer my problem, right? I, exit. <laughs> I, I made my money, I exit. It's no longer my problem. It's, it's the next CEO's challenge. It's no longer my problem. So in terms of maybe bringing it back to, to um, a fresh grad or someone... Uh, okay, let's not say a fresh grad. Like, fresh grad or mm. somebody who's been working for five years, three years, right? And... You know, and then they're considering going into, say, entrepreneurship or building a business. What would be your, your based on your experience, based on what you've read, 
and what you have learned, what should be the things that they look at first and they kind of focus on when embarking on on something as risky as entrepreneurship? Uh, or I, don't do it? <laughs> no, no, no. no. I, I strongly encourage people to start a business at least first. Okay. I think for many people is a very uplifting experience. Okay. Even if you fail. Yeah. I think it's very uplifting. You can tell that my son is back by the amount of noise. Oh, okay. Which I'm pretty sure the mics are picking up. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Bear with that me. Is, that is also a very important part, Vijay. You actually wonder. So, uh, let's step aside and look at the life career of it. Hmm. An individual. I think it's, yeah, a bit closer. A few points where you are under a lot of pressure mm. as an individual is, of course, your first job. Right. It's important. Uh, many people think getting married. Mm. We know for a guy and for a lady is different. Mm. For a guy, it's not getting married. It's having your first child. <laughs> That's what we talk about. Mm. Uh, I would strongly encourage people not to start a business. If you think you're going to have a first child within mm. the first three, four years. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So having a first child is a life-changing experience for a yeah. guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then the, again, depends on your age, on your parents' age. If you're Asian, that yeah. when your, your, your folks get older, mm. there is also a big impact on no, people. Yeah. I think uh, maybe there's something you can say about this, but mm. I think there's a, a bigger impact for a woman Um and I don't mean emotional impact. Like, I think from a from a career perspective, a woman who are seen as single versus married versus married and now with kids has very different no. career. The data shows us that for a woman, it is getting married. No, I, I'm... That, I'm in terms of that, no, causes I'm, them to lightly make a career change or a, a career decision. Okay. Whereas for a guy, it's your first child. Yeah. No, so no, I'm not, I'm not talking about the the action on the employees but right, right. I'm seeing as being perceived uh, in the workforce right or or the assumptions or the stereotype the being a single woman versus married versus married with children or oh, versus being single and quite old single and old still favorable ma like uh, no a lot no, of no, in, in the sense right the I, I, I'm just uh, these are things that I heard that I'm just but these echoing. are stereotypes huh? stereotypes yeah these are not truths these are stereotypes where a uh, 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 first time mom with a child is seen as oh she uh, won't be effective at work anymore won't be able to focus or, and the reality is probably yeah you have to pay more attention to your child it applies mm-hmm. to a dad or a mom but I think in the workforce the perception on at least from what I hear. So I don't know from your point of view, does that translate to HR departments and all that? But like, you know, won't be up for promotion or won't be considered. It's not to say it, they're not being punished, but there's an assumption, a stereotype that, oh, their performance, they won't perform anymore because they're distracted. And so they tend to get passed for promotions and tend to, no, they're they, they not going to put in the hours to climb the corporate ladder and, Again, it's a stereotype slash assumption. I How, do, do you see this kind that, of? Uh, I think there are likely practices like this, unwritten ones, of course, right? So mm-hmm. I'm, I, I think there are people who look at this from that perspective. Right. Uh, many bosses may. Um, 
we can again reverse and say these are easy to spot if you look at hiring practices. Mm. Unwritten rule. I mean, mm. Uh, mm. pregnant, I don't mm. want to hire, right? So because mm. then after that, first within first year, I have to take two months off. I have to pay mm. for that and stuff like that. Right. So that, right. again, we are talking about stereotypical yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, approaches. So yes, I think uh, they are. Um, I personally have not seen uh, gender differences in terms of uh, uh, say pay for example okay uh, I personally have not seen I have seen more women saying that I need to take a step back okay. and therefore I'm willing to forego a promotion mm. If the mm. promotion means that I have to travel, I have to do that because I've right. got a, a child coming on. I've right. seen a lot more than that than the manager telling that, hey, I'm not going to promote her because of certain things. Right. Yeah. So, uh, but again, uh, my HR experiences are in multinationals, so mm. it may be different in different organizations. Mm. And in in Martin on in in the in the field that I was involved in, uh, it, they were quite equitable in the sense that the guy gets as much time off as the woman. Mm, so mm. in maybe that is an equitable factor and therefore right, then it's, right. it's not so bad right? right so i i i'm quite sure that in certain situations there will be differentiation yeah negative and dysfunctional differentiation um but i don't think anybody is going to talk about it nobody yeah. is going to say hey, I, mean, I mean the, the, the yeah. i suppose the challenge is if there's two ways or i wouldn't say there's I, probably there's many ways to look at it or at least the two ways that I, I can consider it from if I was to put think as an employer and think in terms of merits if person X regardless man or woman is putting in X amount of work and and giving X a Y amount of results right the output right if another employee is not meeting that right is not working as hard putting in as much hours whatnot. From a married point of view, as an employer, I think it's fair to promote the person who is has the higher output, lah. In that sense, from a no, no, no. In that sense, I would even say that uh, from HR perspective, mm. uh, please don't do that. <laughs> so, so, and, and it's not because we should be more equitable or less equitable. It's right. because that you need to be very clear. A promotion is for what. Mm. There is this comment okay, saying that let's not uh, say I mean, promotion like yeah. reward that kind of behavior like yeah, whatever that is reward, so uh. whether it's promotion or reward is the same right so if promotion is that uh, you can promote a person to a level of ineffectiveness mm, right? okay that's yeah, one okay right? same thing with rewards right mm. I mean are we rewarding for past performance mm. or are we rewarding to incentivize future performance mm. most of the time it's a mix lah to be fair okay so you need to be very clear so so. If I'm rewarding for past performance, in your example, is very clear. Mm. Right? If somebody puts in more, mm. the impact is more, the result is more, provided that's the case, I'm not just putting right. more. Right? The result right. is more. Yes, okay, okay. We, we probably should reward this person more right. relative to a similarly packaged person who doesn't pull his or her weight. As right. right. From that perspective, yes. Mm. But their man, life is never... Uh, simple in yeah. that sense. I mean, the science itself is never simple. The mm. science itself may not lend itself to easy to articulate and convince mm. others because there are also science data that tells us that differentiated rewards only incentivize future 
high performance for a period of less than three months. In other words, if you and I are both paid a thousand bucks, if you give me a bonus of five hundred bucks, okay, I'm going to continue to perform at my peak for three months, and then I'm going to fall back to the same level as you. Yeah. So okay. what's the point then to incentivize for future performance? Okay, because you so, normalize. And yeah. Then, so okay. so and then my expectation goes up next next uh, next five months six months I expect to get another five hundred bucks. So so in that sense is that we need to be very clear on what we are rewarding for, and sometimes I think that we are very very confused about those things. It doesn't matter what you practice, but yeah. uh, we can still say that I'm very clear what we're waiting for. But in practice, I'm saying that hey, I'm just tapping this guy's shoulder for doing a great job. I'm going to give them, regardless of uh, whatever my practice is, right? But okay. I think from the point of reward, we need to be very clear. So is this reward for past or is mm. this reward to push for future? So if I were to ask you the 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 second approach that I was saying, and it is a very Um, subjective question lah. Mm-hmm. So it is. I don't expect you to give a hard and fast answer, right? Um, in the sense that, if I was looking at it from a humanistic, very philosophical approach, right? You know, to move the human race forward, we need to procreate, right? And whether we like it or not, only one gender can carry the the bad children, lah. Like men, we, I think we would suck at it anyway, but we can't. We simply can't, right? But this is necessary to move humanity forward, whether we like it or not, right? right? So, in a very humanistic approach, right? Should you know? Should you know? Companies or HR, and I don't know if some already are right. Look at this, and I'm pretty sure even feminists will hate me for saying that, right? But if uh, if a woman is bearing child or having a kid, right, where It's necessary for people to that, not mandatory, but it's necessary for people to procreate, have kids, and whatnot, right? Mm. It it is not fair to penalize them in any way. Obviously, I think no company will say it's fair to penalize. But is there a how do I say? Can there be a you know they get a I know a leg up lah, or you know they they get two points in their KPI as a Handicap. For bearing. Oh, yeah, no, no. So hear me out, right? I think if it is, if you're a woman and you're a man, you should be based on merit, right? But just say if you're bearing, whether you're married, not married, doesn't matter. Lah. But if you're bearing a child, you get a, like a little bit of a leg up to kind of like balance the scale in terms of... Uh, uh, three observations, Ijaan. Number one yeah. is that you're making the assumption that you're comparing, uh, you're, you're, you're reward. Is done in comparative manner. Say again. Say again. Sorry. Your, your reward is done in comparative manner. You have a certain mm, amount mm, of mm. Uh, incentive, for example, right. additional variation pay. Right. And then I think that I, I, I need to somehow decide who gets what in the team, based on relative, uh, contribution. Mm. But that's hardly the case in most situations. Most mm. in most practices, individuals with their individual expectations. Right. And what you try to do there is already catered for by having a different expectation for a woman versus a man. How do you say? Uh, supposedly, if a man is expected to do 1.2 million as sales, you mm. can perhaps say that because I expect you to be off work for two months, therefore your target is only 1 million. Mm. So from the from the individual KPI perspective, mm. you can or, or individual whatever expectations you want to call it KPI, whatever it is right. you can already manage that. So it's not a big deal. Yeah. No, but also I get the feeling that uh, 
there would also be outcry on some strawberry men, if I can say that, where oh this is being unfair. Why do you know why do women just because she decides to have a kid? Why does her go uh, her targets are lower? So easy for her to cut target. You no. know there's there's no. uh no I think I think I think that's uh. Uh, that's that's the first observation. So okay. I'm just saying that it can be managed on an individual okay. basis. Okay, no, that makes right. sense. Okay, the second observation Are is that companies doing that. Yes, yes. Okay. So okay. most most uh, most performance matrices are in practice individualized. Mm. Right. Right. So so maybe you have a variation of your pay that is based on group performance. That's a different okay. story. Right? Mm, okay. So secondly is. Uh, there's a different treatment to this and we see this in different countries. Okay. UK gives six months paid leave. Okay. Or something like that. Uh, you go to what? Uh, Scandinavian countries, sometimes you get 12 months paid leave. Mm. So, we are saying that they are being rewarded in a differentiated way anyway. Okay. Yeah. You, you can think about it as, okay, you don't get a promotion but you get paid mm. to tend to your family. Right. And in Scandinavian countries, in some Scandinavian countries, that option is available to both the husband mm. and the wife. Yeah. Right? So mm. you say, yeah. if you think that that's not fair, then you, the guy, you, you, you take your four months off and take care of a kid. Right? Yeah. So, so in yeah. that sense, it's, it's done. And the third one is, go back to the science of, do women who take time off to bear a family or to take care of a family, do their performance deteriorate? Mm. That's number one. Second mm. is, are their rewards unfair mm. and being perceived as unfair. I can't answer the second question because I don't know. Yeah. The first question is quite clear that no, they don't. So despite the fact that you have a first child, whatever, that mm. we know for a fact that the statistics tells us or as you, I mean research tells us that performance impact of women, whether they are having a child or not, are actually quite equitable. So if you're a, a laid-back mm. women uh, employee, mm. you continue to be a laid back women employee. If you are a hard hitting women employee, you continue mm. to be a hard hitting employee, right? So regardless of you're going to take two months off or not, up to the point I've I've seen situations where women are so dedicated that they and and they're water break in the office and then they have to run to the hospital or mm. call an ambulance, right? So mm. I mean, so so you are saying that for whatever time that we mean at work, mm. the impact remains the same. Yeah. No, because yeah. I imagine that if you were to draw those kind of parallels that a low-performing male employee versus a high-performing uh, female childbearing employee, mm-hmm. even if she's maybe spending 80% uh, of the time, 20% less time at work, she'll probably be way more effective than the male. Yes, different. Right? different because they are just yeah. at a different level of performance, right? Yeah. But uh, I think, again, why I would say it's subjective is because it is... It's a it's a perception, right? So if if just say bad management looks at it and say like, oh, but, but hang on, I mean bad management will always bad management. So yeah. we're, we're not going to take that into consideration. But we know like in countries where both parents are given a option, mm. we very often see the men taking up the op- option almost as much as the women. Okay. Right. So we are saying then that you cannot differentiate them because half the time the man is the guy who says I want to take time off. Mm. Then do the men also get that two extra points? I mean, then then you say mm. don't give points. Mm. <laughs> so it's it's, mm. it's an unnecessary mm. complexity that you want to right. build in. Right. And I think the the I think the other observation is in practice is 
my ex boss has always told me something that I hold very close to my heart is if a system and process can manage everything, mm. it's the day we lose our jobs, mm. both as HR managers, as uh, CEOs mm. or COOs or board right. members, right? So, mm. so the question is, the purpose is not to have a system to make all the decisions for us. Mm. The purpose is to have a system to offload us from things that we don't need to look at on a daily basis. Okay. Right. So, and then we manage the exceptions. Right. And this is what we are, and the entire thing we are talking about are probably the last fifteen minutes are what we call exceptions. Right. So yes. Mm. Yeah. How often yeah. do you have somebody getting pregnant in the office? Mm. In, in in my company, where seventy percent <laughs> of the people, I actually have a case. Uh, I heard of a case where somebody in UK, mm. uh, not my company, but then uh, somebody in the UK was hired for seven years. Mm. She worked all of like four months. She got pregnant. She so, got and leave. Then comes so back. So like the pregnant. horror stories or the 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 extreme stereotypes that no, these are horror stories that happen in every single thing, and that's where like my expert says these are exceptions that we need to manage, whether as CEOs or mm. uh, HR managers or whatever, or or just line managers where we need to manage this. Right? That's what we are paid for, right? Mm. Um, it's just like the earlier one about the horse trading in VC industry. Right? Mm. So I've also heard. When I was in the early years managing sales teams, mm. uh, where you have a step, uh, you know, a ladder rate of commission. If you mm. hit a hundred thousand, you get a certain percentage. Yeah. If you hit a million, you get a certain percentage. Mm. Then you realize that <laughs> yeah. my son wants to join the conversation. He to, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's behind you. <laughs> I keep forgetting to lock the room. Come, <laughs> Sorry, I keep forgetting to lock the room. Please help the lock. Sorry. <laughs> okay, I can. I'll probably edit that out. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. Sorry, yeah, you were saying that the in sales, uh, yeah, in sales, then you realize that your top sales people kept getting rotated. Mm, mm, mm. Because if I'm seventy percent there, mm. and you have thirty percent, mm. instead of each of us get. Less. Less. Why don't you put all your sales under me and we get more and then I share with you, right? Mm. So, humans are by nature, some humans are by nature mischievous in that. Mm. They want to game the system. Yes, it's the same same thing with the guy in the venture fund who has got one screwed up portfolio and then (laughs) another great one and I say, okay, to make me look good, you you, you take this and I take this, right? So basically, so I, I think human nature and I think that's where if you try to have a perfect reward system mm, whether the reward system is money or pay package or whatever mm. it is whether the whether your industry is venture funds and your business investments or you're a business leader or whatever it is mm. if you try to have a system that solves all the problems I think you're probably more effective if you invest the time looking at things that matters mm. uh, very early on in my life I read a business book and so bad that I don't remember the name uh, <laughs> and I'm so bad with memory I think it's called the Asher Cycle and something like that. Okay. I, I, oh and the business look, book is not bad no no business book is great yeah. <laughs> okay, so, okay. so it's very memorable it's like you always look at everything you do and you put it into four columns right mm. the things that you have to do because you have to do because it's compliance you file your bloody taxes I mean okay. it doesn't help your business at all okay then there are things that you have to do that doesn't help your business mm. but if you don't do it's going to harm your business, the hygiene factors. Okay. Uh, think about if your restaurant and your toilet is dirty. 
Mm. Right. So if if you're having a clean toilet doesn't get you more customers. Yeah. It may, it may in certain mm. situations where everybody else has dirty <laughs> toilets. Yes, it does okay. help you, right? Yeah. yeah. And then there's a comparative things that you do better than other people. My food is tastier, my environment is better, my drinks are great. Mm. And there's a fourth column where you do things that are extraordinary that gonna shoot ooh, and hit it hit the ball over the out of the fence. Right. right. The thing is sometimes when we are in business, we spend too much time in the bottom left which mm. is the things that are hygiene factors mm. and the compliance factors. Mm. if you're trying to do a business in Europe now mm. you probably have to hire a skeleton crew of five people mm. just to make sure you're compliant there's GDPR there's legal there's so many things right. Right, that, 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 that they become in a way a little bit challenging for small yeah. businesses so right? it becomes a barrier of entry exactly. for, so, yeah. but you spend so much time doing these things that doesn't help your business yeah. where else you should be thinking so, so I sometimes think that trying to find a perfect system is mm. a hygiene factor mm. having a better system doesn't really help enable your business but if you mm. have a bad system it screws your business so mm. you better put that in that hygiene factor and then spend more time thinking about what can I do to maybe create a wonderful environment that people want to come to work regardless mm. of the fact that I pay them less than other people, for mm. example, or, or I'm such an inspirational boss that people love working with me, or we're working on such exciting stuff that people want to have this as part of their resume. Right. Those are easy wins. Mm. Right? Or, or you are like a Google where everybody thinks that regardless of whether it's true mm. or not, thinks that I want to go for Google, that's your, your out of the ballpark side. So I, right. I think sometimes it's, let's not spend too much time on a circle in uh, concern. Let's spend yeah. more time in the circle of influence what we can do. I, I am, a, I, I always think that I am, I'm an action-oriented person. I, mm. I, people who work with me always have this clear idea of my approach. First, I always ask is, what do we know about situation? Mm. Second, I ask is, we, we, I mean, my, my, my team always call it, a, I'm a bookends person, right? There's a bookend. What's the worst case scenario? Right. Can we live with it? Mm. If you can live with it, I can put an intern on a million-dollar account. Mm. Because I know that if the intern does well, we are going to celebrate. If the intern screws up, it's okay, right? Mm. So, so that's a that's a book end. Then, mm. of course, how good does it get? How Im- how big an impact does it go? So, I think if you answer these three questions, you're happy with it. We take action, and we don't have to have the perfect answer of trying to, to, to trying to. I re- I remember listening to a speech by Colin Powell, the ex mm. uh, Secretary of State, and then uh, he was the Chief of Staff. Mm. I think he always says that he, he, he tries to answer very quick few questions whenever somebody comes up in, in, the, in the army oh, mm. sorry in the armed forces and so, what do we know about the situations mm. um, what do we not know about the situation mm. what is a suggested action what are the mm. risks involved and what resources require right? so very simple mm. and I also heard about this almost uh, meme story <laughs> about uh, about this guy in a company I shall not mention names uh, but he's a well known <laughs> company that Somebody did a big uh, presentation that okay. going to the management committee. Okay. I, I was there and, and, mm. and the CEO looked at him and said, sorry, Frank, or whatever your name is, mm. uh, come back when you have one pitch. Mm. So the guy, the guy really struggled because he came from a company where he needed to explain everything. Mm. What really hurt that guy a lot more mm. was the fact that... Uh, he felt that he missed an opportunity to demonstrate how smart he was by mm. saying and telling and presenting to everybody all the things that he has studied and therefore come to this proposal. Right. And I reflected that to the CEO and the CEO basically called him in and said that, 
Frank or whatever. Well, his name is obviously not Frank. Right? <laughs> we call him Frank, right? So the CEO called uh, Frank. You know, we hired you. Mm. That means you're smart enough. Mm. Stop proving to me that you're smart. Mm. Stop trying to prove to me that I was wrong, right? In hiring mm. you because you're smart. Mm. Start proving to me that your smart is applicable to a way that's profitable for the company. So just, right. you're already smart enough coming on board. Right. And therefore, just apply that and tell us where we are going. Mm. And I, I think that's great. There's also some, some I don't know how true it is, there's this legend that uh, everything that goes to Michael Dell is well, one page with four quadrants, right? Oh, is it? Yeah. So it's four quadrants. If you have to go up to him, it's very simple. It's what's the situation? Uh, what what do you require? What the risk? And what what is your decision? Basically, then the answer is yes or no. Mm. Move on. Mm. Right. So I, and I think sometimes it's, some organizations, some middle, I'm a great fan when you talk about management. I'm a great fan of Gary Hamel. Mm. And fuel authors, I remember Hamel. Yeah. Okay. Hamel always look at organizations and say, Who is he? Sorry, I'm not. He, he's just a professor in, in management from somewhere. I think. Okay. Uh, one of those universities. And, and he wrote a lot of books about how to simplify organizations. Okay. okay. The, his management is because. You have middle managers because the company has spread too wide. You need somebody to watch over somebody. Okay. But the people who watch over somebody does nothing more than alignment. Mm. Mm. If you can find a way to align, mm. then the that the middle management has totally zero value. Okay. As a matter of fact, the middle mm. management actually mm. adds on to your overhead costs. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So and there's no point. And right? it's so, a big so, cost. So, so you think about if you send your car in to repair, if mm. every single technician is highly competent, mm highly motivated mm. and highly articulate. Mm. Most of the time it's not. Lah. So mm. then you need you don't need a supervisor going in. Half yeah. the time it's because they are competent, they are mm. not motivated, right. or they are that's why you need a supervisor to tell them what to do. Or they are competent, they are not articulate. So mm. he, he or she pisses off the customer. So you need a, a smart uh, a, a more articulate com supervisor come and talk to you, ask you about the problems, assure you that you bought the right car. Yeah. So yeah. so you see, when you think about it, that if we can get that one person to do that three person's job. You don't need the second and third person. And the yeah. second and third person do not add value. Yeah. It, uh, it yeah. compensates mm. for mm. the failure of that first person, right? Yeah. So, so, so half the time is if we focus on certain things well, um, hiring well, mm. uh, managing well, um, I, I think we don't need a lot of complexity in organizations. I think the complexity does not add value other than cost. Mm. And, and yeah, I can see that. I mean, inflated roles, redundant roles. And, 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 and in organizational design, I've always, I, there was this situation many years ago where I've got an ex-staff come up to me and says, oh, well, there's this friend of mine in a big four, she got this consulting job and uh, they did the work, they sent it to a client, mm. it failed, the customer practically says, you guys are idiots, we mm -hmm. do this. And then it landed on her friend's table and her friend was desperate, she has never done an org design before. So she asked me whether I could help, so we had lunch, and I told her, actually at the end of the day, just look for three things, right? How information flows within. Org design is not about span or control. Mm. It's not about anything else other than getting three things right. How information flow within the organization. Mm. Who makes the decisions? When you draw an organization chart, where are the hubs for decision making? Okay. And who holds the resources required to deliver on those? Hmm. The problem with a lot of organizations is this, when you draw that flow of information and the decision flow and the resource flow, you realize that they are, they are the hub at very different places. Hmm. 
the information collected by frontliners, mm. the decision made up by the decision made by somebody who sits in the back office somewhere, we never seen a client. Mm. The resources is in again supply chain somewhere, right? So, mm. and you get a lot of inefficiency in this. So you want to make sure that when you design an organization, all this string flows through a single point at some point, mm. and this point is the one who look at the information, make a decision, and divert the resources. Okay. But organizations wouldn't that, are by wouldn't that sometimes like cause like bottlenecks Sorry? in an organization where if you go to a certain point and if that person you know whether it's yeah. overwhelmed so you or... have to make sure that the person is the right person but the question mm. is it reduces the risk to one bottleneck instead of three right what if mm. the same ineffective person sits on three points I mean points? it won't even be bottlenecks it'll be three stagnant yeah. so not you moving nothing happening you, you end up with low quality information yeah. bad decisions and no resources to implement on this if you have, if you you think about the ineffective person sitting there, right? So that's not so the, all else being equal is that we assume everybody is effective, right? Mm. Then we design an organization like that. Yeah. Then it's the second thing we do in finding the right pe- people to fit in the right roles. That's a second mm. exercise. Right? So if your design organization is wrong, mm. whoever geniuses you put in there is not going to help. Yellow. Because you're practically requiring three brains to operate on one single thing. It doesn't <laughs> work that way, right? Mm. So, so, so I do think that sometimes it's we spend too much time and I, I don't know what you call it. I, I just think that it's not a very effective way of running organizations. Mm. Well, but it creates jobs, lah. I mean, yeah. consultants. And, yeah, I think yeah. there's the... I guess, suppose that's where the opportunity is as well. Like, especially when you see... MNCs, large companies, and there seems to be a lot of redundancies in in roles or stuff it's like that. There's nothing wrong if or, you know, again, like I said, you know that it is an intentional redundancy. Mm. Right? So supposedly, let's think about, I mean, I heard about this story about a certain big conglomerate mm. uh, in this part of the world that has a department just to give jobs to the VIP's children. <laughs> because every VIP that wants to have sense. children here, a royalty or VIP, <laughs> and say okay. And then the question is, they cannot reject, so they put all these people there, and uh, it's basically just a nice, enjoyable place for little people. I mean, for people to actually spend one, two years and get a resume, right? So, so yeah, mm. if you are clear about that, great. Then mm. deal with it in that mm. way. Mm. If you can then redeploy these people because they are smart or they are good, better still. Okay. But you are very clear that I'm, I'm investing $10 million in a department for VIP students. Mm. Fair. Mm. Right. What is problematic is you tell the world that I'm highly effective and we don't do this and then you're actually doing this, right? Then, mm. you, then you audit process, you look at it and say, hey, I mean, what the hell is this $10 million for? Right. right? Yeah, I think that's so the, it's better to be... But how yourself. would you own up to it? I mean, you can't own up to, hey, this is... Internally, la, I mean, internally, this ah, be fair. Okay. So basically, yeah. you, can tell, you can tell the corporate outside world whatever you need to tell to the do. outside world, but internally, mm. you need to be very clear and then and then people won't be complaining, right? right. I, I won't be complaining, why is this guy not doing anything there? Oh, mm. because he's in a VIP department now. Ah, okay. okay. All right. So, <laughs> so, yeah. so, you, so it's me, a very common department, this VIP department. Uh, not, not very common, but they are. Uh, okay. Especially in countries with... Um, Dignity, many royalties, royalties and powerful okay. people so yeah. in countries like this it's very common to have uh, big the big companies will have some kind of a units like this okay how okay. big these units are or how well camouflaged these units are is a different story altogether okay interesting so I learned something new today <laughs> yeah uh. so so I think that is that is how it is the things in 
organization. But again, like I said, with organizations, with, uh, with life in general, I think mm. this. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should spend too much time worrying, complaining, whining about the things that are wrong and we can't do anything about. Right. Right. So I mean, it's like it's like saying the government is ineffective and you are not even registered voter, right? So I mean, mm. I mean, you you can you can cry all you want about how effective your vote is, but at least yeah. you do what you can do, and then that's no. Actually, uh, the thing I like to say, is, you know, because there was a, like a big movement before the last election about not voting, refrain from voting, mm. and all that, and I think for me it was just like to vote or not to vote is your choice, like free choice. But if you don't vote, you can't complain <laughs> about the outcome, lah. Yeah. Right? If you voted, you didn't get what you want. I think you still have some legitimacy to complain and whatnot. <laughs> exactly, and 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 I have a much more extreme analogy. It's like hoping that you win the lottery, but you don't go and buy a ticket. Oh, exactly. <laughs> okay, that's a better, much better. Yeah, yeah. So wishful you, thinking. You, you can this is a good example of wishful thinking. The ticket chance of winning is one in sixty million, but. You bought the ticket, and then yeah. and you. But if you if you if you keep saying that now, nah, if only I win, if only I win, but uh, you don't go and buy a ticket. I think yeah. that is highly dysfunctional way to live your life. Yeah. No, because even like now with our our creative party hopping strategy and government switching and all that, like even in my community, this housing area, you know, the WhatsApp group suddenly when these things happen, it's just flooded with waste time voting. You know, I queued up. Why should we vote? What's the point of voting if you can just simply switch back, switch like this, right? And this, I, I think to a certain extent, you can understand the despair. The despair that all oh, you think you did this and got this and it turns out another way. But also is, don't give, and I mean, this you also have to stay action-oriented. I, 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 right? I, say, I say something that, I mean, hope or the loss of hope is horrible curse mm. ever befalls you. So I think belief for hope whether the mm. hope is for a better tomorrow, for a better retirement, for a better future for our children, whatever it is, we mm. live for hope. And even when Malaysia was very successful, when I travel, I think first thing I find very intriguing is the energy and the passion in Indonesia, mm. in Thailand, was always so much higher than us. Okay. We're, we're, a, we're a bunch of lethargic fellows. Like, I mean, basically mm. Malaysians, we're just a bunch of lethargic fellows. Mm. I mean, yeah, I don't like the government, but I'm, but, but yeah, I'm just gonna sit in a coffee table and talk about it, mm. But, but that that's a, I, there's nothing wrong about it in mm. that sense. Uh, it's your life, you know. Mm. But I always feel that if, like you say, when you're hopeless and you despair, I think mm. it's unlikely that you're gonna. I mean, I just think that's sad. I think it's just very sad. Mm. So, and I, I mean, think people die because they decided that tomorrow is going to be worse than yesterday and mm. therefore I decided to let go of everything. Go off. La. So I think yeah. that's how it is. La. Yeah. And in that very somber and sad... <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible way to end that? a podcast. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's a terrible way to end a podcast but let's try to flip it around. I think one of the key takeaways is um, get into entrepreneurship for the right reason. Um, try to get in some experience working, get some values in place. Um, don't chase valuation for the sake of valuation. You know, try to have some business fundamentals. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to negate the <laughs> the sad despair, hopelessness. <laughs> no, I I think that that if I summarize the ending, it's just that there are some things you can 
worry about. There are some mm. things you can do about. That. Yeah. I, the, let, let us focus on things that we can do about. Exactly. I, I, to be action oriented. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. I, I yeah. think that would be the key takeaway to, yes. to always be action oriented. Kit, I've taken up more than the time that you agree. Um, thank you very much for doing this. Yeah. Most welcome. And, and I have to say, uh, Daniel, who was on the last uh, previous podcast, suggested, or maybe I suggested, we do one together with him sure, and, and yeah. maybe some other friends of his and he thinks it'd be you know if you would if you think you're harsh on startups <laughs> you should listen to Dan and he says no I, I I agree with Daniel on some of this uh, and he's probably a qualified person to talk mm, about it mm, so I think, yeah. I, so are you right uh, you, you have seen some in of a small people. way so yes. I think yeah I really think that half the people yes, that have startups for the wrong reason okay that'd be interesting I, I, I look forward to doing that one uh, thanks for doing this.